passage for tonight is Acts 2, 36 through 47. And for a little bit of context, this is the early church um, after Jesus has died and resurrected and come back to his disciples. And um, they've truly recognized um, what has come of his death and his resurrection. Um, so feel free to follow along with me. Um, this is the word of God. God breathed. Peter said, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other disciples, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Let's pray and let's take a look at this. Father, in the passage that Alex just read, it's full of things that nobody can explain. There's obvious things. It said that this community, there were signs and wonders, but then there's stuff we're not used to seeing in ministries and in churches, like people being honest, people opening up, people coming into the light, people repenting. There was no competitive spirit. People were for each other. People were in awe of you. They weren't bored. They weren't apathetic. They were enamored by you. And all of those things can only happen when you're there. And all those things can only happen here if you come. Every person in this room, whether we know it or not, most wants you to be here. So would you come? Would you be God to us, the ones you made for yourself? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I know all the conversation is all about, I hope the dogs repeat and do it again this season. They got a lot of pressure on them, so it's going to be different this year. They got expectations. But I'm an advocate. I'm like, everybody slow down. It's only been eight months. Can we still go back and just appreciate what happened first time in 40 years? Can we just go back and still talk about January of last year <laughs> before we rush on to pressure and disappointment about the fall or elation? Do you remember where you were that night in early January when we won? Do you remember the details of the night, like who you were with, where you were, what you did after we won? Especially you freshmen, as you realize I get to come to this team this year. 
I wasn't in Indianapolis. Some of you were lucky enough to be there, but I was in the second best place. I was here in Athens that night with many of you. Our living room was filled up. We had a lot of uh, friends over that night. Some of y'all were there. And in the fourth quarter, by the time that we finally realized, this is for real. Like, isn't this for real? That's like a real UGA fan. Like, we never assume we're actually going to win it. We're always like, they're playing with our hearts. Do not believe. Don't hope. It's just going to smash your heart when we, when we blow it. But I remember just looking at people like, this can't be happening. But you know, by the third or fourth kind of fake win, we actually was like, this is, they don't have time to come back. There's no way they can do it. We, and it was this feeling I've never had before, like, this is it. So of the people in our living room, I mean, one girl, some of y'all know Liz Perry, she's sobbing on the floor. <laughs> she's like next level UGA fan. Um, my nose is bleeding. I was cheering so hard, nose, <laughs> blood started coming out of both sides of my nose. So I look like Silence of the Lambs, trying to like hold my hands up and cheer, but also keep the blood from getting on the couch. There's people who lost their voice. So um, the interns were over, Casey was over, and it's 12.30. The first time I checked my watch that night, um, I looked down and I was like, oh, it's 12.30, it's a school night. My kids, you saw them in the back at the time, there were two, four, six, and seven. And I'm like, they got, I gotta wake them up. They'd been asleep since halftime. They gotta get up, first time in, in my life, first time in their lives, when is this ever gonna happen? So against the protests of my wife, I go, and I wake them all up. It was a little too aggressive. They cried. They were scared. But I was so excited. <laughs> so we carried them to the car, ignore their tears, feel that they'll get over it, throw them in the minivan, throw Jeremiah in the back of the minivan with them. <laughs> and we head for downtown. Now, I live about 15 minutes up Atlanta Highway. And from between my house and downtown, we pass by about every kind of neighborhood in Athens, Georgia. So we pass subdivisions, and we pass student high-rises, and apartment complexes, and housing projects. And everywhere that we passed, people were outside, people were laying on their horn, people were like shooting fireworks. It was crazy. All those different kinds of people groups. And then we get downtown, and some of y'all were there. I saw some of you there pandemonium. <laughs> curb to curb, just red and black. And the amazing thing about that night was it was the first time I've really seen, in, in my own experience, an entire city celebrate in unity. And if you were there, or if you were in Indianapolis, or if you even saw this stuff, you saw what I saw. There were 80-year-old men with their sons or daughters and their grandkids waiting to ring the chapel bell. Three generations of families, old and young. There were men and women. There were college students. There were PhDs. There were high schoolers. There were rich people. There were homeless people. And they were all in the mix, all just out-of-body experience of just being caught up in the euphoria of that night. Everybody's wearing the same color clothes. Everybody's got the same kind of chance. And everybody's celebrating the same victory. But really, that victory was the only thing that all of us had in common. It was the lowest common denominator. 
you start looking at us as individuals and immediately we're all very, very different from each other, don't have a lot in common. But that night we had the victory in common and so we were one. Why do we love those moments? Why do you love those euphoric, transcendent, almost out-of-body moments? Whether it's a concert with your friends where you all know the words to every song, or the Braves' victory, or the dogs. Why does everybody gravitate towards those like a magnet? I think one reason is it's a taste of transcendence. You were made for that. You weren't just made for tangible, concrete, down-to-earth objects. You were made to worship. You were made with a capacity for awe, for things that can't be explained. That's one reason. But the other is, isn't it such a nice release? Isn't it such a nice kind of lifting out of our tiny little isolated individual lives and stories? If you think about what we were all talking about the week before and a few weeks after, it was the political polarization of the country. It was racial divides and justice and tension. It was generational divides and politics and all this kind of stuff. That's, we were all kind of obsessed with what makes us different and we were at each other's throats. One of the reasons I love those moments and I think you do too is it's a little reprieve, a little break from suffocating individualism, where we go about our lives and it's always like, let me show you what's special and unique and different about me. Let, let me express myself to you and emphasize all the distinctions about me and you emphasize all the distinctions about you. We do it in our humor. Here's how I'm different. We do it in how we talk about the political tribe that we're a part of. We do it in social media everywhere. We do it subconsciously. We don't even know we're doing it, but we're trying to tell the world, here's where I'm different. Here's what's unique about me. Here's my identity or how I identify. But nobody was doing that that night. And nobody missed it. Nobody wanted to go back to that. In fact, I bet you were sad a few days later when the buzz wore off. And it was back to normal life. Back to little things. Seem like that set that those few minutes in the transcendent and the bigger than me and that you and I being lifted above what makes us different so that we can be one went back to normal and was gone. I think I saw some heads nod and I think I know you enough to know that you feel suffocated with what we would think our society would prize the most of expressive individualism. You be you. But I think we all are in on the joke. That's not the great game, it's not, it's not the prize it's cracked up to be. You want something big and liberating? You want something real life that doesn't have a game clock that's counting down to zero? You want an experience that doesn't have a last song? You want a night out with your friends that doesn't have a last call and a hangover? Alex actually just read something, a real life historical account of a community that experienced what I saw that night and experienced and what you did too. A community that had been lifted above all the little things that separated them, distanced them, made them different, and shared this celebration and a victory in common with each other, had everything in common. Now here's the weird thing, the one place that God says you can find that kind of community, that kind of fellowship and friendship, 
is in the last place anybody alive today in this country would expect it to be. Where he says you can find it still to this day, real life, no joke, not hyperbole, but real life, where you can find it is in his spirit-filled church. Now, we all get it. It's the last place you would expect to find it. Why? Well, because maybe so many churches, maybe one that you've been in or ones you've heard about, ministries you've been in or heard about, um, have so grossly missed the mark of what this community was. Aren't even churches, aren't even ministries that are anything about Jesus, have settled for lesser things. They've made themselves about those dividing lines. They've, made, they've reduced themselves. They're about culture wars. They're about us and them. They're about progress and pe- preaching progress. They're about whatever other thing other than Jesus and the good news of the gospel. That's a term I'll define in a minute if it's not familiar to you. But they've lowered themselves to all the things that actually divide us, and maybe you were there and you felt othered or outside or like, I don't even want to be here. I don't think it's healthy. But just because some prominent churches or churches you've been in or heard about have so grossly mixed the mark doesn't mean others aren't getting close to that mark by God's grace. So don't give up on the dream. Don't give in to the cynical interpretation of life that says that's not possible. Not in this world anyway. God says it's possible if he's there and if he's present. So what do we see in this community that Alex read about. What do we see there? I want to start big picture, zoom into specifics, and then we're done. Start with big picture. And by the way, I should tell you, we're not looking at this tonight for me to end and say in a few minutes, and this is RUF, guys. I mean, just amazing. We share everything in common. Everybody's always in awe all the time. Everybody's always confessing. We're always helping each other, bearing each other's burden. That's not where I'm going. In fact, if you, kept, if you have a paper Bible and you, keep, you flip the page, this community, there's a ton of dangers and threats that assaulted this community, that threatened this fellowship, this unity, this formation. And it threatens us too. So I'm not saying we're the perfect community. I am saying this is where we're aiming. One of the reasons why is I figure if some of you are looking for a place to put roots down on campus. RUF's not a church, I should say. We're, we're an arm of the church, an extension of the church, but if you're looking for a ministry, a campus ministry, to put roots down and to grow, to reflect on who is the real you, and to reflect on who is the real God, and how can the two meet? Well, I figured if, you're gonna, if we're going to ask you in other places, you're going to say, hey, get on our bus for the semester, you should ask, where are you going? This is where we're going. This is the intended destination. It's where we hope to be more and more every month. So again, what do we see in the passage? What are the marks of a healthy community that actually is a community Jesus goes to, that Jesus attends, that his spirit is present in? Well, we see a lot of, a lot of marks, a lot of things that remind me of what I experienced that night downtown. So again, the big picture. These people, the one thing that they really had in common, I mean, Alex gave a little bit of context, which was helpful. These are people from scattered all over the ancient Near East. They were in town for a festival. They were in town for Passover, and they're from different countries. They speak different languages. They didn't have much in common culturally or ethnically. 
they're about as different as you could get. So don't be fooled and say, oh, well, all the people with everything in common, that's why they share this fellowship. No. They share this fellowship because just like the victory had lifted all the Athenians above all the things that made us different and unified us over one victory, these people, by God's grace, were lifted up out of all of the particulars and they were bound together like glue. All they shared in common is they were people who had experienced and tasted the kindness and the mercy of a God they finally knew was real. That's the victory they're celebrating. God's victory on their behalf. Now, victories. I wasn't on the field in Indianapolis and neither were any of you from the looks of the room. I don't see anybody's head standing two feet taller than everybody else's. None of us were in that game. It wasn't our game. We weren't on the field. Some of us were hundreds of miles away and yet you celebrated as if it was your victory. Why? Because you had oriented your entire life around that team and the team's success is yours. The team's win is yours. Do you see for these people, for people the Bible calls Christians, Jesus's victory over the threats that faced them or face you, namely death. That's a big threat. Um, Shame. That's a debilitating, eroding, acidic threat. Regret that you can't ever go back and undo. You can't ever relive a day in the past. His victory over sin and guilt, the reasons we feel guilty. That was his victory. And these people are celebrating it as if it was their victory. God says it is their victory. He says those who repent and come to Jesus, you share in his victory. You share in his power. So that's why these people were bound all together just like one. Tim Keller, I'm going to pull up a quote. It's two paragraphs, but it's understandable, so hang with me. (laughs) He says, do you realize that it's only the gospel of Jesus Christ where you get the verdict before the performance? Let me explain this as I go. What he's saying is it's only in the gospel, or you could say only in Christianity, where God gives you the verdict like, well done, good and faithful servant before the performance. I grew up, not because someone necessarily taught me this, but because I got sideways somewhere, and I always imagined that the Christian life was, you go run, you go run a race, and at the end, God will render a verdict on how well you did. Mm, and it's like he's holding up placards of the number. What Keller is saying here is what the scriptures testify throughout. God freely and mercifully gives a verdict before the performance. The well done good and faithful servant is not kind of the finish line in the Christian life, it's the first breath of the Christian life. Do you, can you imagine the freedom, the burdens that lift off your shoulder when you realize your whole life is not an audition before God, but that he is willing to give you what you lack? Freely to give it to you. No dog and pony show, no religious ritual where you're like, do it right or else. But where he says, Jesus did it right. And I'll give you his resume and he'll take yours. But back to the quote. 
It's the only place where you get the verdict before the performance. He says, for the atheist, the Buddhist, the Muslim, and you could say the secularist, the nominal cultural Christian, your performance leads to the verdict. In other words, how well you do in the race is what renders the verdict, the number you get. This means that every day you're in the courtroom. Every day you're on trial. And that's the problem. But the Bible says that in Christianity, God's verdict leads to a different performance. Does that make sense? His love, his acceptance, his adopting you as son or daughter, his welcome of you changes you. It changes how you run that race, how you live your life. Here's where we end. The verdict is in, he says, and now I perform on the basis of the verdict that God freely gave me in Jesus. Because God loves and accepts me, I don't have to do things to build my resume. I don't have to do things to make me look good. I can do things just for the joy of doing them. I can help people simply to help people, not to manipulate them or get something from them or make them happy so that they treat me better, not so that I can feel better about myself or fill up my own emptiness. Here's what he's talking about, y'all if this still seems a little philosophical, God's grace transforms you supernaturally. Super means above, naturally means stuff we're used to, stuff we can do. <laughs> God changes you in a way that you can't change you. That's the offer of God's grace. He will do for you what you couldn't and wouldn't do. And he'll do it freely for you. Um, that's what his grace does. It changes you, and it unleashes you into the world. Again, here's how. You're no longer in a permanent audition mode, wondering what he thinks about you. If that's where you are with God, I promise you, you'll resent him, and you'll want to be done with him. This might be your last time in any kind of ministry like this, because you're so tired from the audition, and you never really know if he likes you or not, never really know if he loves you or not feels like a taskmaster. But what if the audition is over and you know because of his mercy you matter to him? That's where love begins. It's where a changed life begins. How would that affect how you relate to other people? If you know, I know, real comment here, I know other people judge me by my performance. We, that's the world we live in. Your professors will judge you by your performance. Right now, not in a harsh way, but you're sizing me up. Is this good? Is this bad? Does this relate to me? Does it not? You're judging me by my performance. It's okay. I get it. It's how the world works, but not with God. Because of who he is, he is willing to judge you based on Jesus' performance. Who is God? Who is good? who is righteous, who is just, who is fair, who tells the truth, who loved everybody exactly how they needed to be loved, and who's alive today. Can you, this is why for the Christian, God looks at you and he loves you in a similar way that he looks at and loves his son. That'll blow your brain when you think about that. It's beyond our ability to really understand. Here's the effect it has on you and your community, and here's where we get specific before we end. Someone has described this before as God's grace changes a human being 
from a centripetal person, where you're a black hole, everything in your life kind of revolves around you, people's attention is all about you, um, how, your, how your week is going, how your day is going, it all relates back to you, how people relate to you all relates back to you. His grace turns you into a centrifugal person. Centripetal is kind of like, I guess, a yo-yo you're spinning around and it's coming in on itself more and more tightly or a black hole. Centrifugal is, you know, throwing out a Frisbee. The energy is spreading out. It's being unleashed. When I explain it, does it make sense of why these Christians were relating to each other the way that they were? Does it make sense? God had made them like God. He's a centrifugal, centrifugal God, a God who gives life, not a God who sucks it into a black hole, but a God who breathes out life, who bursts out life. And look at what the people that he's changed by his grace, look at what they start to look like and how they start to act. First and foremost, they're available to each other. Did you see that? And I'm getting specific now. You want to know what RUF is aiming to be? I'm not saying we're all here. This is where we're headed. To be a community here where each of you is available to the people around you, which starts maybe even tonight, which means if you came with a friend and you're not a big talker, maybe it means grab that buddy and go say hey to one other person because maybe they feel really lonely tonight and you give yourself away, that centrifugal energy of the grace of God starts to move out towards other people. And you share your time with other people, even though you might not feel like you have a lot of it to give. Centrifugal people, your attention just kind of is unleashed and starts to spread up towards God. Every person, Peter says, or, or the author says, was in awe of God. In other words, it's not a hypocritical community that sings songs about how great God is, but they actually believed it because they felt it. There is no person, no Christian, no community where you feel in awe of God all the time. Your emotions broke when the world broke too. They're like a clock. They're right sometimes and they're wrong a lot of times, like a broken clock. But, when you encounter the real God in his word and through his people, your jaw begins to drop and you realize, wow, he is utterly different than I ever imagined and better. These people started sharing their stuff with each other, like their social status. People who had a lot and were well known and had a lot of popularity went down the social ladder to hang out with and befriend those who didn't have it at all. That's supernatural. When do you ever see that happening? We want to be a community where we see that happening because God is here. These are people who were, the doors and the windows were always open. It would be a community here who's always mindful of who at UGA isn't in the room. We're a ministry for them too. This isn't a sorority and not a fraternity. I was in one, I love it, but that's not this. We are here to serve those who are still far off, as he says in the passage those that God is still waiting and hasn't yet added in to the number of his people. He says this was a glad community. These people had gotten over themselves by God's grace. They didn't make everything about them and their opinions and what they thought of it or who talked to who or whatever else. They, just a beautiful release. They'd been given grace to get over themselves. These were people celebrating Jesus' victory, and that's what bound them together. 
and it lifted them out of all the little quibbles of who did you vote for? How rich were your parents? And all that other kind of stuff that often puts wedges between us. I want to end with this. What's the evidence that God was present in this community? And what would be the evidence if God were present here? It's easy. Are things happening that nobody can explain with natural explanations? Like I could probably explain this, you know, um, lots of texting and lots of Instagram posts and flyers and word of mouth, it makes sense. But some of you have, have stories and twists and turns in your life just from last year you can't explain. You didn't show up to UGA looking for God, you showed up finally ready to cut the chain and go do your own thing. And he converted you last year. You know him now. You know he's real. You've seen too much. You know too much to ever go back. That's inexplainable. Some of you are, are, are shy, and you found just grace to move towards other people, even in your shyness, and to be hospitable and warm to them. Some of you are bouncing off the walls, extroverts, and you found grace to not make it about you, but to use your personality to serve and help other people. Some of you just were surprised recently to maybe feel cut to the heart about a way you were treating a friend or a way you were treating God and you'd never felt that conviction before. That's supernatural. People filled with awe who never were in awe of God. Those are the marks of Jesus coming to RUF. We pray, like Alex and Abby said, every day that he does. And we ask that you would pray that too. And if this is a place where you want to go, get on the bus and come join us. Because we need you to share your wisdom with us. We need you to serve and help us in our burdens. We need you to be one who handles us in our brokenness. That's what this place is about. I'll summarize it in one sentence. You'll hear me say this a lot, but we want to be a community that meets you exactly where you are, but never leaves you stuck there. And we need, to be, we need you to be someone who meets us where we are and doesn't leave us stuck where you found us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, again, things happen in that community, and we want to see them happen in this that we cannot manufacture, we cannot plan, we cannot strategize. You must come and do it. So do it. We pray this in your name. Amen.